It's the afternoon cruise here on Jazz 88. I'm connecting with a fantastic trumpet player and composer who's coming to town on May 19th and May 20th later this week. I'm talking about Ambrose Akinmusseri, fantastic trumpet player, and so glad that you're bringing this new work to the Walker Arts Center. Ambrose, thank you for taking some time to chat with Jazz 88. Well, thanks for having me, Sean. My pleasure, bro. Now, this sounds like a, a big undertaking, which seems to be kind of Walker Art Center's M.O. They just brought Cecile McLaurin-Salvant to debut Ogress, and now we're getting Honey from a Winter's Stone. You are no stranger to big, ambitious projects. What do you have planned for these two nights at the Walker, and what might come afterwards for these musicians? Well, the first night, I'm just sort of putting people on a stage and, and seeing what we create as creative people. You know, I think it's rare that we get to be surrounded by other amazing artists. And I'm, I'm these days I'm really interested in what happens if there's no roadmap. Mm. And you got a different goal for night two, right? Night two is a little more pre-constructed. Night, yeah, I'm approaching that more as a commission. So I've just been writing a bunch of music. When they asked me to come to the Walker, you know, we had a long list of of people. And once I narrowed it down, it was in sort of in a, in a similar format to the record that I did, Origami Harvest. So we're going to go in the studio the, the day after the performance and try to document that for another CD. Oh, that's really exciting. So this will be a special moment and a special night, but uh, something might come of it beyond just the nights at the Walker. Is that correct? Exactly. Now, for a person who is clearly is comfortable in very composed environments as well as looser, let's see what happens environments, as you're preparing for this set of shows this weekend at the Warka Arts Center, was it a little bit purposeful to do the thing that has a little less of a roadmap night one so you can kind of feel each other out and then the grand majority of people are still going to be involved in night two? Does that is that kind of the let's get let's get experimental, let's get adventurous, and then let's actually look at some of the music you've prepared? Is that a little bit the strategy? I don't know if it was so planned out like that. Night one has two performers that are not on night two, one being Cole Poulis. And then Mary Halverson, who, was not, who will not be on the second night. So I think it was more logistical than did anything else. Gotcha. Now, you have gotten a, a ton of acclaim and a ton of love for the albums that you've made across uh, these last, I guess, 10-plus years, especially um, your work with Blue Note, including uh, the beautiful record on the tender spot of every calloused moment. Throughout your journey, you've been recognized for not only being a phenomenal player, but being a brave composer and a brave player who will sort of dig into parts of the black experience, parts of the experience period that don't necessarily always result in, oh, what a snappy tune. I can't wait to, you know, tap my feet to this, but something that goes at the heart of some really emotional, powerful spots. When you are navigating those moments in your work, whether you're composing, improvising, or, or, or a combination of the two, how do you take care of yourself as you do mm. very, very demanding and, and, and frankly, fruitful work? I love the work you do, but I can't imagine it doesn't come without some strain on your spirit. How do you take care of yourself? Wow, Sean, that's a very, that's a great question, man. I, I don't know, to be straight up with you, uh, but it is something I'm, I'm thinking a lot about. You know, I could say all the things that everybody says, you know, like sleeping and meditating and exercising and all those things. But as I get older, it becomes harder and harder to replenish myself. So I'm just I'm just trying to give more in hopes in hopes of that being an answer. But you're definitely right. It, it does take a toll on you, um, both mentally and physically and spiritually. 
you know, it's, it's not just the music and, and putting the music to paper and performing. It's the fact that the music reflects the life that I live. And that in and of itself is training, you know, as, as the many things I am in, in this world, not only a black man in America, but, you know, as a father, as a partner, as as a, as a son, as a friend, all these things, you know, they it's, it's a lot of giving and a lot of receiving and, and just trying to figure out best way to um, to stay on this planet <laughs> in a healthy way. I hear you and I appreciate you being honest about not always knowing the answers. And I think that there's that weird combination in the world of music where it can be a release and can also be a documentary of tension in a way that different jobs that I've had, it, it doesn't always feel that way. As a father, some days I can't wait to go to work, right? <laughs> I drive to work and I'm not dealing right. with my kids for a little while. This is something where uh, when when you get on the bandstand or wherever you're doing your musical work, I hear in that music that there's not a lot you're keeping off the bandstand. I appreciate that. And I don't have a quick answer for you for how to replenish it. All I can tell you is as a listener of your music, it is hitting people. It's hitting me. It's hitting people all over the world. Thank you, man. I'm not saying that always makes it worth it when it's draining you, but I do want to let you know that there is somebody on the other end of the line hearing this music and feeling special things about it and and learning things uh, from your work. Thank you, Sean, man. That's great, man. I didn't didn't know this interview would replenish me, man. That's great, man. That's good to hear. It's always good to hear that. (laughs) Now, we've been a supporter of your music for quite some time here on Jazz 88. I should mention I'm chatting with Ambrose Akinmusseri, who's getting ready for some shows this weekend uh, over at Walker Arts Center, both on Friday and Saturday night. The most recent piece of music featuring your work on it that we've been playing on the station is actually the tune, The Great Western Loop, from the recent Billy Childs record. I had the opportunity to interview Billy Childs just a handful of weeks ago, and he was really positive about his work collaborating with you. Um, and we love that, the sound of that tune and that record. Uh, while we're chatting, you know, like, what was making that record with Billy Childs like? How did you connect with Billy? I've known Billy for many years. Before I met him, I was a huge fan of his. Yeah, he's someone I've looked up to since I was in high school. He's a great composer. He's a great improviser. Uh, and I actually studied with him when I was getting my master's done at USC. And I learned so much from him. And we stayed in contact. And he's actually someone that I call to this day when I'm doing commissions or I have questions about certain certain things related to composition. And he had been talking over the last 15 years or so, he's been talking about doing a a record together. And so it finally came together. That is a beautiful thing. I recently did an interview with Lakeisha Benjamin, fantastic saxophone player. Mm -hmm. and, And she talked about the feeling that especially since COVID, finding access to older musicians, especially older musicians who might want to be guarded about their health, who might want to make sure that they're not, you know, out at smalls at two in the morning, how she still connects with them is sometimes through collaborating in the studio. And she goes, sometimes, frankly, I just want to share the space uh, with somebody. And then, and, and, you know, the music can be secondary. You seem to have had um, opportunities to be shoulder to shoulder with a lot of greats, sometimes in a student-teacher relationship, a lot of times just in a uh, recording or performing uh, way. What has it meant to you to be at this point in your career where folks who at one point were just instructors or teachers are now collaborators or like-minded performers? What does that feel like for you? I mean, it's an amazing feeling. It's regenerative. You know, we're all in the same in the same boat. And it's actually the way that I came into this music. You know, I, I was really lucky here in the Bay Area. There were a lot of older musicians still around who were connected to a lot of famous musicians. So you know, before I went to New York, I played with um, 
Bobby Hutchison. I had played with Joe Henderson. I had played with Sonny Simmons. I had played with and knew, you know, Billy Higgins. Yeah, I just had access to a lot of these people and a lot of musicians that nobody will ever know of, but they used to pick me up at my house and take me to the flea market and teach me about the history and the social context of the music. Uh, um, so being in contact with, with elders has, has been something that I've always valued in this music. And I always just thought that that's what it was until I, I went to music school and it wasn't that. Um, so I've always tried to keep that that sort of relationship to the music. And, I, and I've always seeked it out um, throughout my, my career. I want to hone in a little bit on this because I think the Bay Area in so many ways is the best of this country. And the Bay Area is often a place where things can be misunderstood as well. And what I want to ask about is, is the fact that many musicians from where you're from talk about it's a, a tangibly pro-black space that has been a mm. tangibly activist-oriented space for mm. much longer than either of our lives were similar ages here. And there, there might be a time where somebody growing up playing jazz in, in Kansas, somebody growing up playing jazz in Miami might not quite connect with the music in the same way. So maybe I'm wondering, you're getting to a music school in a different part of the country, and are you feeling a little less of this, like, this is a revolutionary music, this is a, a pro-black music, this is... Are there things that you felt about this music in the Bay Area and you caught a disconnect when you went somewhere else and explored the music? Yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, you know, I had no, there's no way I could have known that it wasn't an experience that people were experiencing in other parts of the country. But, you know, my mentors were ex-Black Panthers that just happened to be jazz musicians, you know, and, you know, they knew all the people. So when I would get a record, you know, be like, oh, on this day, you know, we hung out with Duke Ellington and we went to this ice cream shop and this guy slapped him. And that, I made up that story, okay. but <laughs> it would be things like that. And I was just like, oh, okay, that's why, you know, it was the, the, the why behind the music. Like, you know, it wasn't just the notes. It was like, oh, this record is like this because this cat was going through this at, at that time. And also being from the Bay Area and being from California, it's like you're you're growing up on an island. Like we don't, we don't have access to New York or Boston or Chicago or New Orleans. So we're just over here checking out records. And when the people come through, then we, we, we go to the clubs. But when I was coming up, there was only Yoshi's. There was one club. Right. Kimball's East was another club, but it was already a little bit more commercial. So Yoshi's was the only club that you could go to. And to get there, you really had to be quite famous already. So if you wanted to really be you know, up on the jazz scene, or even a hip hop scene or any type of scene, you you just learned it through records. And it seemed when I was coming up, you know, I was really jealous of other people who could who were able to go to live shows, but I'm so glad that I, I, I sat down with the records. And back then, I, I sound like I'm old, but back then it you know, you you just had that one CD player, right? The portable CD player. So you just lived with a record for a long time, just repeating it, repeating it. And so you learned so much in that way. So there's that. And then also just being from Oakland, it's it's a beautiful bubble in the sense that you get street credit for being flamboyantly yourself. Yeah. You know, all the movements that have come out of Oakland have, have been about that. You know, the hyphy movement or, you know, the dances like Go Dumb and all these other things are about not caring about the glance or not caring about the outside world or not caring about the people who are outside the bubble. And that's something you can hear in the music from Sly Stone you know, Larry Graham, you know, you can, you can even hear it in, in musicians who aren't originally from here, but stayed here. Tupac, 
Yeah. You know, the, all that stuff is is Oakland. It's, it's, it has that same energy. And I, I think that that's related to the Black Panthers and, and other movements that have happened here, too. Man, I, I guess we're both doing some replenishing of one another because here in Utah, really enthusiastically and, and frankly about Oakland is, is beautiful. And I mean, it's an amazing place to come from. I'm sure there's things to be jealous of about folks who are coming out of New Orleans or Boston or Chicago. But it's like you also were playing with Bobby Hutchison and, and brushing shoulders with Billy Higgins before you're, you know, getting your diploma in high school. That's a pretty big deal, too. And it's that combination. You know, you, you're getting the records, but it seems like you also got that firsthand experience. And it, it just reminds me, Ambrose, that it's, it's really important who you learn jazz from. Yes. Yeah, a, a fantastic young musician from town uh, who, who plays a ton of stuff that I would classify as jazz. But he was like, I thought I didn't like jazz. He's a young black man. He said, I thought I didn't like jazz. I just only learned it exclusively from older white people. And he wasn't knocking older white people as a group, but he was just saying, I didn't find me in the music till I did, you know? And, and it was just a very interesting conversation. And it, it made me realize, made me thankful for the teachers I've had. And it makes me thankful for the people who took time to come to your house, connect with you, and give you that living experience of jazz music and that, that education. It's, I'm glad you can't buy it, but it is priceless. You know, it's, it's, it's something you get when they want to connect with you and be a part of your life. Right. Yeah, I, I do think, I do think it, it can be a black-white thing, but I, I also think that it's the difference between learning from someone who um, is not playing for any type of success, you know, all my mentors, they were they they had no hopes of being famous or making some record or whatever. These cats had had, had been in penitentiary, you know, they had been then pimps and hustlers and like all this other stuff. So when they played, that's what they were playing and they would encourage you to do the same thing, you know. They would be yelling at me if I played like stock licks and, and things like that. And I just, you know, I was lucky to experience that. You know, they would make me keep playing until I said something. You know, they would be yelling at me, tell me your story when I was 15, 16 years old. And the other thing is that I was also really lucky. My first jazz show, I won tickets on the radio station here. And my first jazz show ever was the Art Ensemble of Chicago. And I went backstage and I met Lester Bowie and Roscoe Mitchell, who I ended up playing with later in life. So my entry to jazz was extremely special and different than you know most most of my peers who, who opened up a book and, and took a lesson I, I was familiar with that story because i did my homework and i read a great article about you written by a, a fellow radio peer nate chin and um oh yeah it's great and ta talking about that story and what a way to be introduced to music and and what a way to continue it on I don't want to take up too much more of your time, Ambrose, but I feel like we, uh, I've been tiptoeing a little bit around some of this that you were just talking about these older gentlemen, or excuse me, older people, I don't know about the gender of these people, saying, tell your story at age 15 and age 16. And then I, I read you in that article that Nate Chinon wrote talking about trying to play your blues and making sure that when you play your blues, mm -hmm. you're not playing B.B. King's blues. You're not playing Roscoe Mitchell's blues. You're playing yours. I, the quote you said, man, where you said, the worst thing you can do with Roscoe Mitchell is play what he's playing. <laughs> how do you how do you, it's got to be a really different thing to tell your story at age 15 than at age 41 how do you stay playing your blues telling your story um in all these different settings man you know i just check in with self as, as much as i can and as painful as that is and i always i have this button inside of myself that's ready to to be pressed at any time 
that sort of activates this thing of, uh, I don't want to say contradiction, but I'm, I'm willing to contradict myself in order to move forward. Like I'm, I'm, I'm really not holding on to anything, but it's hard, you know, it's, it's hard. And again, staying up with the masters has helped me, you know, and there's a guy, um, great drummer, Michael Carvin, who's been super helpful for me in the last two or three years because they, they've already been through all this stuff. So that that's, that's what I'm, I'm doing often. You know, I just stay in, in contact with the, the plug, the source, you know, and then those are the masters. And I check in with self daily just to see how I'm doing. I know more how not easy that is in the last <laughs> in the last year. I would go, oh, check in with self. Oh, it's just it's, it's a cool thing you say. No, as I've been on that journey, it, it, it's not easy. And it is an act of courage. It's to- not easy. Yeah, so. Ambrose, I, I really, I honestly cherish this conversation differently. I, I'm very happy to talk to all these artists, but I, I feel like we arrived at a place where I just was talking to somebody for a minute, and I, I really appreciate you bringing that to this conversation. Of course, man. Thank you for your, your great questions and doing your, your research and, and challenging me throughout this this interview. I really appreciate that. Ambrose Akinmusseri is playing on Friday, May 19th, and Saturday, May 20th, 8 p.m. for both of those shows. That's at the Walker Arts Center this Friday and Saturday. Can't wait to welcome you and a truly impressive uh, coalition of musicians to the Twin Cities. And uh, good luck at the shows. Good luck at the recording sessions on the day after. And Ambrose, thank you for chatting with Jazz 88. Thank you for having me.